Hello, friend. Thanks for being here. As always, I am flattered and downright honored to have you listening to The Tully Show. I think you're going to like this week's episode. I had fun talking to Aaron Carnes about his book, In Defense of Ska, whether you are a Ska lover, a Ska hater, a Ska agnostic, Ska curious, even if you don't know what's Okay, if you don't know what Ska is, you might have a little bit of trouble with this week's episode. Who the hell doesn't know what Ska is? It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. Here's something else you can check out in addition to this Tully show over on my Patreon. I do a thing where I take a look back at years in history, one at a time of up to 1984. And it's the, the year that Gremlins came out, the year that Tetris was invented, to name but two earth-shattering events from the year 1984. I've left that podcast open for everybody to check out for free. Not just audio, but you might have heard I'm doing some high-definition video over there as well. Listen to it, watch it, enjoy it. Hope to see you there. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? <laughs> Uh, his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, no. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today... By his own description, in his own words, a music journalist with a soft spot for ska. Today, we will be discussing a book he has written about that oft-maligned yet stubbornly stubbornly persistent punk subgenre entitled In Defense of Ska. Hello and welcome, Aaron Carnes. Hey, how you doing? Um, um, I'll, just, I'll, just mm-hmm. take, I'll just take an issue with one thing you said I there. love it. Let's do it. Let's, 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 let's get right into it. Great. I would say it's not fair to call Sky a punk subgenre, even though the two styles have overlapped a lot mm-hmm. in the last uh, couple decades. But there are versions of Sky that continue to thrive that are unconnected to punk rock. Terrific point. You know, I wrote that intro before I, sp- I read. I mean, I'm, about half- <laughs> I'm about halfway through your book. I-, I would change that going back. You're right. Who was the, um, to pick one of, you obviously know a million more examples than I do. Uh, Tim Armstrong had that band that he put on his label. The Interrupters? No, 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 no. The Interrupters, I would oh. say, are a punk rock. Going oh, back, you're a talking few about? Years. Oh, yeah, because uh, um, Hellcat. Yeah, he did. He did quite a bit of a more traditional type of ska. Like One, he had Hepcat on. Yeah, who are don't I would not call them having any punk really. Hepcat, Slackers, also no punk there. Um, he did one in particular where they were they were recorded in mono because they wanted to sound like they were from you know Jamaica and the sure, late yeah. 60s. It was a cool it was a cool effect. Obviously, it wasn't going to work on radio, but I don't think that was ever really the idea to begin with. So, yeah. point well taken. And however, just like that. Um, mm-hmm. However, I will say that the the connection between Scott Punk was pretty significant. In fact, one of my chapters was specifically about how s- sort of these styles overlapped to such a degree that they kind of became like like how you described it as as viewed as a subgenre of punk um so it's a it's a fair now it's a fair point to, that someone would take away from it mm-hmm. if they were uh in a, if they were in the u.s from the 90s to present that they would see it as kind of a subgenre yeah the the if you had one in your music collection it was a, a fair bet that you had a bit of the other well if you had ska in your collection it's a fair bet yeah. that you had some punk in your collection not necessarily a given Not necessarily the other way. Punk, yeah right right, <laughs> right 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 so i came across your book in the most random of ways uh i do some uh news podcasts and a, a number of people brought to my attention this um, business going on with Dickie Barrett and the Mighty Mighty mm-hmm. Boss Tones. I don't know uh, how many people know about that stuff. I don't know if you have any insight or inside info into that. The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones unceremoniously declared unequivocally we're gone, we're done, we're not kissed, we're not coming back in three years, sort of out of nowhere over their social media and it turns out they probably had a decent reason for doing that. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything more than what you probably know just from searching on the internet. Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard rumors. I don't have anything, 
I don't have any uh, any I don't have any deeper insight into concrete information mm-hmm. is what was all I could say about that situation. Yeah. So word on the street is Dickie has reinvented himself as a music producer specifically for up and coming rocker and anti-vaccine zealot Robert yeah. F. Kennedy Jr. That is, um, I mean, Re- Rolling Stones reported on that. I, yeah. I feel like they probably uh, they probably fact check it. They yeah. probably you know ran it through their scrutiny. So that is probably the only piece of information that's a, a solid fact on, on that situation. So I think we'll probably be hearing more about what really went on in the coming months and coming years. I don't know. Yeah. I'm I'm only so interested in what Dickie Barrett's up to these, this, you know, these, these days um, with all due respect, but I, I read this article and it led me to your book and the title was perfect in defense of Scott. I'd never really thought it in such concrete terms mm-hmm. as something that needed to be defended and then i started thinking through and i go well yeah i guess i guess maybe it's sort of it sort of does <laughs> i mean i'll put my cards on the table I'm, I'm probably in a pretty similar place to lots and lots of people who'd be listening to this um i don't think much about ska a whole lot sure. at all one way or another i'm that guy i liked some of the two-tone singles and that was mostly what i although in reading this book i forgot how much experience i have i dated a girl in college who brought me to several pie taster shows which i'd completely erased from my memory despite the fact that i went back and listened to a couple of the songs and pie tasters it's a good band um yeah, yeah uh to the extent that we make fun of ska if people do make fun of ska or you know put it in a lower tier in their mind of credibility um the people might have found the the songs and particularly the horn parts a little bit uh predictable i to this day do occasionally still hear bands where i can kind of hum the horn part before it happens and then nobody loves a good pun more than me but <laughs> ska's indulgence in in ska based puns sure um i is, mean mm-hmm. the title does have a pack a pretty like intense <laughs> sound to it but it, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't meant to be like i was going to come on and, and like shame the masses for what they did to ska it's definitely right. just like a a fun way to push back on i think a way that the music has been interpreted by a larger culture, kind of unquestionably people who aren't actively involved in the ska scene, who don't like collect ska records, who don't go to ska shows. They just kind of have this idea about ska if they think about it at all. And that's that it was um, this embarrassing kind of dumb period of three years in the nineties where it got really popular and it was a bunch of dorks and, uh, and then everybody uh, realized that it was really embarrassing and ran away from it. Um, that's just an idea that people have about it. And uh, there is reasons why that exists, but it's there's the story of ska is so much deeper than that. And it's not just the story begins in Jamaica, goes to two-tone. I mean, that's a story that a fair amount of people are aware of. In fact, they'll probably say something along the lines of, and then America ruined ska or something like that. But I was I would argue that the story of ska in the U.S., is so much more deeper and interesting and diverse than the most people realize it didn't just go you know there was a few two-tone singles that cracked through in the in the early 80s and then 15 years later um some bands from the orange county kind of like reinterpreted them with pop punk and silly uh, lyrics that's not what happened i mean ska came to the u.s almost as fast almost immediately after two-tone happened you know bands were hearing these songs they were forming scenes were being built in the u.s there was uh, the u.s scussing flourished and and grew throughout the 80s and and early 90s it was really strong it was a very indie diy scene but there was record labels there was zines there was touring networks you know there was by, by the early 90s, there was a, one particular booker who kind of was taking on most of these bands. And um, he was helping to establish not only a, a, ska, a ska network for touring, but he kind of was helping to invent an all-ages scene in clubs that didn't really exist before that through the demand for ska, uh, you know, for bands to be on the road for months at a time. Yeah, the, the, um, one of the most compelling parts of the book is just... Um, chronicling retelling the the diy nature of that and in that regard it's not that different from any other uh but just like it 
nobody kind of lays it all out there the way that these people do being in vans that are literally taking you know absorbing bullet holes on their way out of town not because they were a scott band you know for (laughs) for an unrelated reason just because you saw you know uh Goldfinger on MTV and thought, hey, I want to get in on that action too. Obviously, the the passion for the music um, among the people who perform it and the people who enjoy it comes through loud and clear in the book. And it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I think Ska's is like a really, you know, we, I think that the, the subject of how major labels, um, you know, plucked out pieces of subculture and, you know, spit it out to the public in, in a way that was, very much to their benefit and not representative of the actual subculture. That's the thing that's repeats throughout the nineties. And I think the one that feels like it gets the most coverage is sort of the, how grunge was a manufactured subgenre taken from just basically rock bands in a Pacific Northwest scene. Right. It was kind of, wasn't really called that. And they didn't wear flannel for any particular reason, other than it was a weather, you know, weather-based decision, you know, and so MTV packaged it in a way where it made it seem like all these things were part of the subculture. And, you know, that's a, I think that's a conversation that people are kind of more aware of, but the nineties, you, you did this repeatedly with different subcon subcultures and ska was one of them. And ska was maybe one of the most egregious versions of that because even during this period of time in like 96, 97, when you're seeing ska bands on MTV, you're seeing probably six or seven tops. There's hundreds of other bands and they're all doing different things. They're all representing the genre in different ways, but the, the way it's represented in the mainstream is very particular and it's establishing an idea about this genre that isn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily true. Like a few years earlier when all of those bands, the, the mainstream ones and the ones that stayed underground were underground. Yeah, well, I think you have to remember where the industry was in the 90s in that regard. You mentioned, and I forget which band you were talking about, was shopping themselves to labels, showcasing to labels in the early mid-80s. And the label flat out tells them, we're looking for another Peter Cetera. And, you know, yeah. so that's that's where they're at. You have this label that, I'm sorry, this industry that's functioned very, very well and very, very smoothly in a way that involved lots of money and perhaps even also lots of Coke and hookers for people for like 50 years. And now all of a sudden the man with the golden ears doesn't have golden ears anymore because every, nobody knows, nobody can figure out why Nirvana hit, but it's obvious that they're not, as they call in, 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 in entertainment, uh, a non-repeating event. It's not an outlier. It means something. Kids don't just want Nirvana. They want a lot more of it and things that are similar to it. Yeah. But it wasn't as if, you know, uh, you know, CNC Music Factory and all the hair metal bands may have gone out of business the day Nirvana hit, but the guys behind the scenes didn't go out of business and they yeah. only knew how to do business the major label way. And it was a square peg in a round hole to take punk rock scenes to take grunge scenes for lack of a better word to take ska scenes and what were they going to do they were going to package it up they were going to commodify it and they were going to make it ready to be in your living room on mtv you know it was inevitable yeah i mean my, the mighty mighty boss tones actually were the first band uh that got signed and they kind of got signed a little earlier than there being any sort of ska um you know buy up because they got signed in like 93 i remember a tv commercial with them right yeah. before they even had a hit it was a converse that's right yeah so when they were signed, though, I think it was Maverick. I could be wrong. Madonna's label. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was um, the the guy who ran the label basically saw heard about them and then went to their show in Boston. And they were very popular um, because the Bostones were a band that were extraordinarily professional from day one. Like they were the kind of band that would rehearse daily. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like over and over and over just tight i don't know if you've ever seen the boss tones live one of the most tight the tightest sets most polished sets i've ever seen pretty contained you know a lot of ska bands kind of went for the chaos and just like everyone's going nuts on stage they were very like we're a professional band we're putting on a professional show and they were doing this when they were just an indie band so and then they they had the flannel i'm sorry not the flannel the um plaid plaid, thing the plaid suits they were doing that pretty early too and 
they were drawing like a lot of people, you know, especially in, in Boston where they're just, where they're known from. And the, the guy running Maverick or the label was, he saw like lines out the door and he saw like everybody dressed similar to them. So he just got that like label, you know, spidey sense of like, something's happening here. There's obviously a lot of energy for this. I don't quite understand what this is. I don't even understand what this music is, but I, I want in on it. And, and he signed them. Um, so that's their story. But Scott didn't really break in any significant way. They didn't even really break in any significant way till like 96, 97. I think their first legitimate hit was in 97. Right. Was it, was it fair to say that Sublime sort of broke Scott to the mainstream despite the fact they're not really a ska band at all so they're 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 a band that played ska they played reggae they played punk they were kind of just a a catch-all band but scott he he did he did a lot of the up picks on on the guitar that was the most Scott thing about them he was way into reggae and he liked ska too so i mean it was definitely but yeah their song date rape Mm -hmm, was a song um they recorded that song and released it like in 92 or 93 and that song just in 95 got randomly played on k-rock and um somebody like people were like this is cool i like it and started requesting it and you got it's just became a it became a, in regular rotation in 1995 i literally remember somebody in a bedroom somewhere saying hey you should check out this band and, and more about yeah. the the risque nature of the the lyrics yeah and the story i think right and and i think that was off of like a cmj comp some sort of college radio thing that was as organic a break as you could ever have it was definitely and then you know <laughs> Back in those days, K Rock starts playing your song. That means that uh, all the all the rock stations in the rest of the country are either going to follow suit or they're at least going to pay attention and consider it because K Rock is considered the like gold standard in in trend setting at the time for you know anything alternative or rock and roll. Yeah, um, for, for a long time they were. Yeah, go ahead. And then um, what's it called? Rancid Time Bomb. That was the next single that took off. That's uh, right. That was ska, and they're a punk band that you know would do one or two ska songs an album basically but they you know those guys are from operation ivy so they're no they're no strangers to the genre yeah what do you make Um, of of operation ivy in all of this so you 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 point out in the book right that there's a lot of people who liked the 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 two-tone stuff and that's kind of where it begins and ends and i don't know mm -hmm. anybody who hated the big sublime sing or who i don't know anybody who hates sublime you may think that you may be a little sick of hearing them after all these years but i don't know anybody who hates sublime i don't know anybody they they get a lot of hate um especially because they have sublime i think unfairly gets a lot of hate because Mm -hmm. they have a large frat guy fan base so they get that so so there's this is a thing that happens to some bands i think it's an unfair way to is like i hate their fans like people say that about like um grateful dead or fish or whatever I hate their fans. That's like, well, okay. Yeah. I get, I get why you hate their fans, but that's not really, that's not really the band's fault who yeah. becomes the fan. No, no, no. But I don't, I don't know anybody who I consider has a credible musical opinion who thinks Sublime was a bad yeah. band, you know? Yeah, and they, I, I guess that's sort a good of, band to play, yeah. to play devil's advocate. I'm, look, I'm, I'm a big hair metal guy, which is like an <laughs> even more embarrassing form of all the same stuff. I'm not here to try to tell you that ska is bad and I'm not here to try to convince anybody that they should listen to it. I just try to like, play devil's advocate with some of the stuff that I see in your, in your book, like operation Ivy is a weird sort of outlier in all of this, because I think that there are lots of people who are like, I'm going to pass on real big fish. I'm going to pass on uh, less yeah. than Jake, you know, n- name any number of bands. I think op Ivy. And of course, some of it was the credibility thing of just, they had that, that stamp of approval. And then the rancid association, but I think it's literally just because most people heard "Take Warning" and were like, "Yeah, that's that's just a that's a, a good song." Is that fair to say? Operation Ivy feels like the one band that came after 1980 that just got the overall stamp of approval, despite being clearly a ska band. Yeah, yeah, they definitely are the band that uh, <coughs> ska haters like. Yeah, it's something that you start the book with that. Uh, I found so fascinating. Again, it's one of these, just like the title of your book. I'm like, wait, is that really? Yep. No, he's right. He's right about this. The book <laughs> kind of starts with the um, the role that outing plays in <laughs> in in ska, and and it's sort of the equivalent of of being in the closet for a for a while. There, I don't know that anybody would really care too much about this stuff anymore. I, I didn't know that the guy from Star Wars was uh, <laughs> carried the baggage of his brief ska past. I thought my my kids all into Star Wars. I thought I knew everything about the new Star Wars. I don't know how I missed that, but right, I forgot all about this. 
the killers come along, and I don't know where Brendan Flowers gets off thinking that he's entirely original in his own right, but yes, this band, The Bravery, comes along, and you could be forgiven for thinking The Bravery's big single, Honest Mistake, was a killer's song. And so that's his turf, and he wants to defend it, and he and he has the lowest blow possible at his disposal. Did yeah. you guys, hey, internet, we have an internet at this point. Hey, internet, I'm Brandon from The Killers. Did you know the guys from The Bravery were not only in a ska band, but I think one guy might have had dreads, and their band was called... Scaba the Hut. Scaba the Hut. And now, yeah. I don't know if there was going to be a second single from The Bravery, but not after that, there wasn't going to be. <laughs> Scott with the hut. Um, I mean, that is kind of an embarrassing name. Let's yes. let's be honest. But and uh, the stills too. I've I, I've never heard anybody mention the stills anywhere. I don't know if you've ever. Li- I love the first stills record. Yeah, it's one of my favorite albums great. ever. Yeah. And I did a shameful Scott passed there as well for Montreal alt rockers. So it started with Scott of the hut because mm-hmm. um, they were going back and it's really funny by the way that mm-hmm. they were having a public beef where they would. <laughs> say things in interviews or put out press releases were just a dog on each other. And that's like the fact that the bravery, a couple guys in that band were in Scott of the Hut was, was an insult. But then, then it came out that um, the killer's drummer, um, Ronnie Vanucci, Vatun and Okay. I'm sorry. I can't remember his last name. Who cares? Yeah. It's Ronnie though. Ronnie was in a band called Attaboy Skip uh, who actually were a band. uh, They were around. I know, I know people who've played with them. They were pretty prominent 90s ska band, actually. And so, yeah, that came out. And so it was like the band that's that's like throwing the stones has uh-huh. a glass house. Yep. Mutually assured destruction once you start playing the, did you know they used <laughs> to be in a ska band? But it's funny but the, that really that is this is a thing that has been used to 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 dog people. And a lot of people, let's be fair, have had you were in a band that didn't used to be that good. If Scaba the Hut had actually had like a a, a, a plausible, <laughs> catchy-ish, hit-ish song in their back, well, I don't know. Scaba the Hut was going to be kind of hard. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious, off the top of your head, how many how many ska bands do you think you could name that have a pun on the word ska in in their band name? Um, the probably quite a few. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're going to like try to get me to do it, but I will say this: mm-hmm. the very, very, very first ska band ever had a ska pun in their name. So, what are you going to do? And that's the Scottalites. Right. So if it's if it's right there in the in the pedigree, I guess that makes it a little bit better. Let's talk a little bit about your um your relationship to the genre and your uh your sure. introduction to the genre. Um now I, a lot of people have gone to a show and found religion with what they saw on stage. But very, <laughs> very few people have have, you know, as as they say, you know, um, you know, I I I I, I love the brand so much. I bought the company. You loved Skank and Pickle so much. You became their roadie. Uh, well, <laughs> it's more like, it's more like I love them so much yeah. that I became friends with them. Yeah. And then through being friends with them, uh, I got offered to be their roadie, uh, on, on one of their tours. And cause I was, you know, hanging out and going as many shows as possible anyways. Now, can I share a little sample of Skank? Sure. This is a band name that I've heard over the years. I don't know that I've ever spent any time with the Skank and Pickle uh, collection. So I pulled up Special Brew that seems to be the agreed upon. This is the song? This is a cover of Bad Manners' song. So okay. You know. Is that all right or should I do something else? Oh, uh, you can play it, but I don't know that that definitely, I don't know that that um, represents them quite as well. Do you have I, a- I actually do. I would love something that represents them because I had opinions you- on that, but- mm-hmm. Do you have I Miss the Bus uh, handy? That's a good that's a good classic skank and pickle song. I got it. All right, let's do it. Again at the five o'clock to go to work at nine o'clock. It takes me an hour to stick my hair up. But why? Why do I always miss the bus? I miss the bus. I miss the bus again. I miss the bus. I miss the bus again. Okay. All right. I, I, I got the idea. Yeah, I'm glad you corrected me because that definitely is a slightly different flavor than the one that I was going to play. I get a little bit of a, like a, they might be giants thing off of that. Is that crazy? No, it's not crazy. They, they were definitely into that band and mm-hmm. uh, they were definitely influenced by a lot of eighties new wave stuff like Oingo Boingo, you know, cause they were kids that grew up at that time. So mm-hmm. it makes sense. You know, when you're, when you're when you start a ska band and you know you listen to the, the various ska bands that influence you you're also influenced by all the other bands that are around that you're into as well and it's it's not hard 
you know, if with this genre in particular, it's not hard to be like, I like ska, I listen to specials, I listen to this, but I also listen to hardcore. I also listen to this music and it just, it's easy to take those influences and kind of mesh them in there. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a genre that is flexible enough that you can do that. Well, not exactly the same thing as what you're saying in some ways sort of proves the opposite, but you mentioned in the book, this, these people who have sort of this ongoing project of demonstrating that literally any song that's ever been recorded can be turned into yeah. a ska song. <laughs> are you, uh, are you familiar with Scott tune network? No, I had never, I, no, I don't spend much time okay. on, on, on YouTube, but you're making me think maybe I should. Scott tune network has gone pretty viral. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person and the person that heads that is, a uh, Jeremy Hunter and um, they have been doing covers of ska songs and they do it in their room and then they do all the instruments themselves or sometimes they have guest people and it's all cut together so you'll you'll see them with the trumpet you'll see then it'll cut to them playing the bass and they're super talented and it's um yeah like you just hear how ska kind of just be tweaked I mean sorry any song could be tweaked and you're like yeah okay that works. This works. This also flies. <laughs> so you got, you know, your introduction to the scene is, you know, I, I gather spending some time on the road with another band and then you have your own band. Um, true or false, you were a drummer who played often shirtless with a happy face drawn <laughs> on your naked torso <laughs> featuring your nipples for eyeballs. That There is a photo that exists of that, but yeah. I don't know that I did probably play with no shirt frequently just because um, it gets really hot mm-hmm. uh, when you're behind a drum set. I didn't. I didn't usually put a happy face on my stomach. And that was not a signature look. Okay, I'm glad. No. I'm, I'm glad we're correcting the record on that as well. <laughs> um, traditionally, have the people in your life, romantic partners, friends, people that are in your car, enjoyed ska as much as you do? So my wife, uh, who I've been with since my early twenties, uh, not a ska fan mm. at all. And so this is for solo drives. <laughs> Dude, I don't think and, I don't think my wife likes hair metal or Brit pop, so we're very much yeah. in the same boat here. She, this is this is her, uh, this is the show. Just how much she she loves me. Mm-hmm. She's an editor, um, and she edited this book for me twice. That was kind of her. That was very kind of her. Yes. Well, and, I it's look. I'm not. This does not make me. It's really making me really reevaluate what I think about this stuff because you know i, I want to play a little bit of the pie tasters because th- there you go this was i'm dating this girl and again the cliches we oversimplify everything in history and in our minds and scenes and stuff like that the girl that i was with if anything she was a little gothic leaning but mm-hmm. like most human beings who like music she liked more than one kind of music so i can remember her uh, dragging me to uh, to pie taster shows, and y- you never really know when you haven't heard something in twenty years, and you go back and listen to it, what you're going to think of it. And I was really pleasantly surprised by revisiting the pie tasters. Yeah, they're more of a band with like um, R and B influences as well as ska. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't really, you know, they probably like punk rock. I, they didn't really. There wasn't much punk rock. You can't really identify much punk rock. It's more like rock and roll, R&B, yeah. and ska, you know? Yeah. Here, let me play a little bit of I, I believe I know what the big songs from the Pie Tasters were. Yeah, the sort of the, the the classic like really early days rock and roll stuff in there blends really really mm-hmm. nicely with more of a typical ska form. It only went, I mean, they were big enough. They were headlining shows that we were going to. They were clearly making money on the road. Listening back to that, I almost have that filed with hits from the '90s. But they never did. They even ever even sign no. with a major label? Uh, they signed with uh, Hellcat. Actually. Oh, they, it makes sense. Makes sense. And I think they might have been on Moon before that yeah i'm not 100 percent on that but i'm pretty sure they signed with hellcat yeah that that's that that's a good band i mean i'm not telling you anything that, that you don't know <laughs> but um let me run a couple of statements from your 
book Wait, back. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, ask, please, please. Let me ask a question. Were you so you were you from that area, the East Coast? Or yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I would say that there was more instances of bands on the East Coast at that time doing. I don't want to say traditional. It's more like mod, you know, definitely more mod leaning, mm-hmm. or more of a two tone leaning. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not a one to one, you know, pure case or anything. But there seemed like there was more more of that on the East Coast than over here in the West Coast, where it was like. A lot of punk, a lot of like, you know. Yeah. With the, and, and then additionally, like you have like bands from LA that are very, were very deep into the the traditional stuff like Hepcat and their fans would be like skinheads and, and, and rude boys and real true adherence to the, 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 the history and the, and the traditions of the music, you know? Yeah. Like. Very different experience going to a Hepcat show in the '90s than going to like a Skank and Pickle show, which both both are great bands. But you go into a Hepcat show and like people know how to dress at those shows, and uh, people know how to dance. <laughs> and you go to Skank and Pickle show and it's like everyone's dressed like whatever you know. People like there's goth kids and hippie kids and yeah, what you know, just people in just shitty t-shirts and everyone's just gone crazy. No, no one's trying to like dance in any real way. Yeah. So it's a, it's like two totally different experiences. It is again, you that the inextricably linked nature of nineties punk and nineties ska. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if, if I, if, how do you explain the difference between East coast punk and West coast punk? I, I could spend all day on it and maybe I'd nail it. Maybe I wouldn't. Everybody who's listening to this, who's made it this far kind of knows what we're talking about they yeah. were kind of different to me in the same way. The night, the nineties West coast ska stuff was very much of a piece with, you know, I spent a summer in Santa Barbara and, uh, in 2099, something like that. And a band like Lagwagon wasn't coming out of New York. I can't really put into words why that was, Yeah, but you would yeah. say the same thing about all the ska bands. I think there was definitely, you know, in, in the pre-internet <coughs> days, even though everyone had access to, um, uh, other music, I think, bands were more in, influenced by their local scenes than they probably are now. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Positively. So, you know, so, you know, one band starts to do something and they start to become locally known. Maybe, maybe they take off nationally, maybe they don't, mm-hmm. but it does, it does have an impact on the up and coming bands. And even if they move past it, I think that's, it kind of becomes part of the, um, part of the DNA of their band. Like, you know, they grew up as like 13 year old seeing Lagwagon, So it's just that's going to kind of just be there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'll give you an example of something else that came to mind of a subgenre that I kind of weirdly put in the same category as ska, although it's far more limited and limiting than ska is, um, is like the, the Irish rock, the Irish punk mm-hmm. thing. And it wouldn't be surprising to me to go see uh, pie tasters and have, you know, whatever iteration of dropkick Murphy's were around back then at the same time, be very surprising to see, a West Coast ska band. I mean, you could have a big festival and anybody could play with anything, but Dropkick Murphys are not peas in a pod with a West Coast punk rock band. They are with an yeah. East with an East Coast ska band for reasons I can't quite put into words, but I think everybody kind of knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think probably it's the the idea that Irish, <laughs> yeah, being an being being like an Irish and living in an Irish neighborhood and <laughs> uh, holding your Irish. I mean, I'm like uh, half Irish, mm-hmm. but I don't think of myself as Irish. But like, if you were from the East Coast, Coast, you would, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just throw a couple of statements from your book back at you, and if you sure. want to comment or elaborate on them, this is stuff that um, just really was food for thought for me. Um, I don't. I got the sense that you were maybe co-opting something that has been said many times in the ska world. But ska is the idea that quote marching band kids. Uh, uh, addresses the idea that marching band kids can't be real rock stars. I mean, that's kind of it, right? The kid who was in the marching band when other people were, you know, beating people up or scratching things in their arms or learning how to play guitar or something, all of a sudden they discover beer and weed and they want to get in on that action. (laughs) And this is their, this is their way to, to, to parlay their skills into rock. Is that about it? I mean, you know, I think it became that. I mean, yeah. That's not where it's, that's not where Scott started. Of course but I not. think, you know, it, you know, at a, a certain point, you're a kid in band and your options, you know, as a, as a trombonist, you know, you could continue in jazz or whatever. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you're really into jazz, that's great. But if you, now there's like this punk subgenre, 
as you you know as you said you know you could be at punk shows you know and, and eventually you can even be on MTV and play you know the trumpet mm. i mean that's like a whole that i mean when did that exist in the 80s i mean yes there was a few saxophone players like, very different. It's a very different thing. Yeah, yeah. Like Tina Turner had Tim Capello play sax, but uh Wow, that's amazing. I was just about to say, yeah, there were saxophone players on every other hit in the eighties, but name one. And before I I Tim could Capello. I he's couldn't the tell. man. Yeah. He's the man. He's uh, from the Lost Boys. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I don't. Go see the movie The Lost Boys. Right. The the iconic scene, not intended to be the iconic yeah, scene. Yeah, no, no. I mean, the, I, I I know the movie. I just can't place okay. how a saxophonist. It's, it's, it's the two Corys, yeah, and it's a vampire movie. Sure, and Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's those the are, movie. Th- those are maggots. Yeah, I got it. There's a few minutes in this movie near the beginning where they go to some outdoor party. It takes place at Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, by the way, mm-hmm. and they have a band playing, and there's a muscle, just a a, a greased up muscle dude playing sax and he's singing um, a song by the call called I still believe. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just, it's supposed to be a background, but it's the most iconic scene of that movie. And people talk about it. People make jokes about it. The center alive did a skit about it. No way. Yeah. Tim Capello. He, and he was just, he was Tina Turner's saxophonist. He had been the first from like eighties and nineties. And it was just a gig he got offered to do like, like for two days while he was like, you know, didn't have gigs to do for a few days. Mm-hmm. He drove to Santa Cruz, did it back on the road. It's like, it's like the thing he's most recognized and known for. You give me one more reason to rewatch. You, you got to watch it. Yeah. Um, another statement from the book. This is a, um, a quote or a statement attributed to a guy from leftover crack. Ska is dance music for punks in it. Also kind of about that simple, isn't it? Yeah, I thought that was like uh, probably the most astute thing he told me during our interview. Yeah. I was like, wow, you hit the nail on the head. I think that's what it is. Like some punk rockers might like different kinds of dance music, but I think that if you take a, a whole room of punk rockers and play ska, that's going to be the most agreed upon music that they will be willing to dance to at that particular moment. Well, also, you know, we're all too cool and I'm certainly just as just as much and I used to stand on stage staring down at my guitar in the nineties just as much as anybody else. Like dancing is a normal human expression. It's a thing we like to yeah. do. Find me a child that doesn't enjoy dancing. It's something that we either people shame us or we shame ourselves out of. It's a natural thing when you're enjoying music to want to throw your body around to it and ska became sort of the I mean, nobody was I mean, again, I come from a couple of different incredibly ludicrous, pretentious scenes when I say this. So I, I, I'm no one to be casting stones, but nobody had more appearances to keep up than like a hardcore punk rock kind of person. So if somebody's giving you a back door to actually dance in a way that's not ludicrous. And then I think of this girlfriend that I had in who was kind of a goth person going to college in the nineties. And I have, I have seen that woman skank wholeheartedly. <laughs> My friend, um, so a, a friend of my friends, he worked at Amoeba Records up here in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and they had like some employee party where they each like put up together like cover bands, you know. And so this this he put together an Operation Ivy cover band, and my friend was in it, and he was telling me that all the other bands were just you know whatever, the kind of bands you picture record store guys to put together like sho- you know, shoegaze indie rock stuff, and everybody's just like so into it and 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 just standing there and and like that you know that's their how they're experiencing each band and they get up there with their operation ivy cover band and midway through the first song all those hipsters at the record store just start going crazy and they just start singing along to all the words it's just like icebreaker <laughs> i mean really it kind of is. Like, I'm sure they all felt better after that show than every than every other band who they probably were way more identified with. Yeah, know? exactly. Because it just gave them permission to actually let loose and have some actual fun, which is, of course, one of the best things that you can say. And, and I think something that has not helped Ska's reputation is that uh, arguably it's a music that's best enjoyed live. The records are fine and great and everything, mm-hmm. but you know, that whole thing of being in some, I, I, I used to be a waiter and somebody was in a band, come see my band, support me, you know, I'll, I'll come out and I don't even know who these people were. I, they, I don't know what they, they never got a deal or anything. And the proverbial sweat dripping off the walls. 
Yeah. That's what Scott its finest has to offer. Yeah, I think that this is a self-imposed idea. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it was from the bands because I think the bands and the audiences were like, yes, the experience live is so, you know, it's so good. How do you replicate that? But I think that it's up to the musicians to think a little differently about this and be like, well, I'll give you a good example. Um, one of my favorite new bands is called Bad Operation, and they're they're based out of New Orleans. They they released their first record in 2020, and those guys are in their 30s. They were in ska bands when they're in you know in their 20s, like you know like a lot of people their age. And at the time, it was all about the live show. They, you know, they put on an amazing show. Their records were so so because they didn't really think about they thought of the album more as a, as a way to grow their fan base, to get people their shows. That was the mindset. And so as I got a little older, they moved away from ska they were doing like different, you know, kind of indies, indie styles that, you know, kids get into in their late twenties and early thirties. And while they're doing those other kinds of music, they're learning about how to manipulate the studio, how to like create an album as a craft and an art of, of its own, you know, the live experience and the studio experience, really are truly two different art forms and yeah. should be should be approached differently you know what works in one doesn't work in the other and vice versa and some of the most quote unquote live sounding albums yeah. you've ever heard were incredibly manipulated to create yeah exactly because you because you have to think of them as their own art form so when they when they formed bad operation uh in like 2019 and then you know a pandemic happened and then they didn't really have much to do they really like worked diligently on that record in the same mind frame that they had as indie rockers which is like to say this is this we're not trying to make this sound like our live experience we're trying to make this sound like the best version of an album and i think that that's a really good example of like you know you think that way as a ska band and you can create a really good record i think that their record holds up and jeff rosenstock um did the same thing. Um, he he was in ska bands, you know, back well, in the day. He, he, the music he, industry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You say, you say bad operation. I've never even heard of this band. What, what's what's the song off the bad operation album that you like? Well, they're not that we're not they're not super known, but um, I would say Bagel Rook would be the song I would recommend. Okay, let me. Can I play a little bit of it right now? Yeah, dig it up. Oh, it's the, good, good. They got the, uh, the the organ. I think an underrated sky instrument is the organ. Absolutely. I, you know what? Under Underrated instrument in general. I yeah. can't think of a song it made worse. It can be mixed too loud, but that's not the organ. <laughs> are, you, and, so are you familiar with Jeff Rosenstock? No, I don't know who that is. So Jeff Rosenstock, he's kind of become a... Um, like a pitchfork darling type of guy. Uh, he he was uh, in he was in ska bands in the two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, Arrogant sons of bitches, and then bomb the music industry. Which okay, was some semi ska oriented. He went solo, um, and he uh, in like two thousand sixteen, I think his second or third album got started to get really all the music writer types like, but it wasn't ska. It was like indie punk stuff. Mm. Really, really amazing stuff. Jeff's an incredible songwriter. And then um, in 2020, he released this album called No Dream, which is like super dissonant, really, really um, more punk sounding and very depressing lyrics about the state of the world and just the kind of issues that you seem to continue to have in your like mid to late 30s that you thought that maybe you would have gotten over by now, but you haven't. Like it's all kind of touching on these themes. Mm hmm. So then um, it was, re- they had already recorded it. They released it in like April because that's when they had planned to release it anyways. And so that, you know, as a, as an idea that kind of, as like a dumb idea that turned into a real idea, they were like, we should, uh, we should do a ska version of this record. Right. Cause Jeff's a ska guy. He, he grew up in, as a ska guy. So this idea took root and they like really worked hard on it and made it good. And so like this year, no, last year in 2021, he released it, Ska Dream. So it's an all Ska version of No Dream. Uh-huh. Now it's fun. It's funny, but it's actually really good because he really took time with it. 
Um, another good example of like ska can be um, done really well uh, in the studio if you if you approach it right because you know they they work remotely you know him and his band and then they they brought in every kind of every guest they could possibly imagine you know everyone from like um i think they had like guys from pop from uh death heaven uh just like you know all these different people contributed you know a vocal or something you know just it was like a fun project but they really just worked hard on it and sky dreams like is a really good record and um like it, as a record, it's good, not not just as a, oh, I want to see this live. Right. Yeah. No, you'd like to think that it that it can be done, and that um, I think we've seen in a lot of genres that I mean, the world's just different nowadays. It used to be that you know you felt really rock and roll when you were nineteen, and maybe people really did change, and you know you watch old movies and you realize that that mm-hmm. old guy was really like thirty four <laughs> years old, yeah. but clearly had flipped some sort of mental switch, and we're part of a generation of people that are like. I don't know what to tell you. I still like distorted bar chords, even though I'm 40 years old. So sue me, but I can't write songs about my high school girlfriend anymore. My mind has evolved beyond that. And, you know, enough people hammering at that same thing are going to figure out a way to, uh, to, to stretch the boundaries and allow these previously, you know, I don't mean this in a bad way, but just straight up juvenile, you know, rock and roll was a juvenile, um, you know, and, and now you can write, you can write a good rock and roll song in your, when you're 50 about being 50, you know, it turns out that these, these genres are more than, um, elastic enough, um, to, to allow for that. Um, was surprised in the book. Carson Daly gets mentioned more than once. <laughs> D- doubly, I, I wrote a, a syndicated show for him years ago, but uh, oh yeah, yeah, doubly surprised that you know perennial punching bag Carson Daly is mentioned at least all the ones the mentions I got to in a totally positive way. Carson Daly actually really did contribute to the success of quote unquote good ska in in America. Is that fair to say? He was yeah, he it was part of that. Sure, yeah. I mean he was also. Um, and and people can people can take this um, positively or negative. Uh, he was a big factor as to the success of Smash Mouth. Look, um, "Walking on the Sun's not a terrible song. <laughs> I will say this about Smash Mouth. Um, I know I'm, I'm I, I lived many years in San Jose, so mm-hmm. I, I saw those guys before they were signed because that they were around. I saw them open for Voodoo Glow Schools, and uh, I know their guitarist Greg Camp. Uh, he's actually the person that wrote all their music. Nicest guy on the planet. S- total sweetheart. Um, I, w- I once wrote an article about, um, you know you know how uh, Hey Now became just basically the, the fodder for memes? And it like, just hit critical mass like three or four years ago. What, uh, Where, I, I'm sorry, I don't know my memes. Hey Now, what's Hey Now? Oh, you know, Hey, hey Now, you're a rock star. Oh, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. and by memes I mean like um, you know musical remixes and j- in jokes, not like like actual not still yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Like there's everybody was doing a um, some kind of weird remix of of Hey Now where like mm-hmm. it was like my favorite one was like the minor key version. So somebody has somehow turned it all into minor key. So it was like the sad version. Oh, that's always funny. fun. Sure, yeah yeah yeah. So I um, and then there was uh, John Sedono who did like a whole YouTube channel of just singing Hey Now over every other song, which is <laughs> And it surprisingly works well. Yeah. So I did this whole article on it for Salon and uh, I interviewed Greg because I know him and I was just like, he just like loved it. He just didn't, he didn't, he wasn't like us. So, you know, I can't believe people are, you know, being irreverent to my art. He's like, that's just so awesome. That's so rad that this song means so much to people that, you know, that they're taking this and they're, you know, they're recontextualizing it and whether it's, you know, done with a tongue in cheek or done from, cause they like it. Like he just, appreciated the appreciation of his work and i thought that was rad it is i for some weird reason i remember that when that song came out and got really successful the singer guy was saying that he was surprised and mildly baffled by how successful it he said that when they finished that song his first thought was I bet you we're going to be able to license this. You know, Converse All-Stars is a real obvious <laughs> place. To, but he was just like, oh man, this is, we're going to sell this to commercials. This is going to make us a lot of money. But he didn't, he himself was, in saying that, was sort of acknowledging it's kind of a corny piece of music. <laughs> I'm surprised people like it. But hey, if we made it and people like it, I'm not angry at people liking a thing I made. So I'll go with it. 
Yeah, I can't. I don't know that anyone could have predicted that. Not only was the song like a really big hit in 1999, but then it became, you know, it, it was on the Shrek soundtrack and basically yes. like kids who were of that age at that time became like this. I don't even know if hit is even the right word, like a song that they just <laughs> intrinsically knew and loved. Yeah. And carried with them as part, they got of, part of the Bible of their lives. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, so you have like this multi-generational group of people who like just know this song inside and out. And like, probably, you know, even if they go like, God, I can't stand that song, probably like it on some level, because I think you just naturally like those kind of songs. It's infectious in the way that you might fondly recall, like the theme song to a TV show. Mm-hmm. That's kind of yeah. that's kind of what it is, and and if you want to get angry at it, you can because it's kind of like an infectious TV show <laughs> theme song. But as as I say, I, I I never wrote I never wrote the one song that would you know that's just like objectively like man you can't you can't fuck with that that's a great piece of work right there. And I honestly, when Walking with the Sun came out, I was like, okay, I'll give you that. You guys you guys did a little you got a little surf rock yeah. thing. I see I see what you did there. If if you gave one decent song to the world, I'm willing to overlook a lot of stuff that 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 came after it. Um, oh, I was having a conversation before I knew I was going to talk to you, but like a week ago because this interview came together very quickly. And thank you for for accommodating that. Has there sure. ever been? I know you mentioned in the book that there's somebody who kind of dabbled in goth meets ska, but I feel like maybe it ended up being more of a lyrical kind of thing. Has anyone ever taken a sincere stab at goth ska? Because on the spot, we thought of this, uh, um, uh, the other show that I'm on, the producer, Katie, and I um, immediately said we would call our band Scod for Life. Okay. Uh, well, the one band I was mentioning was called The Independence, mm-hmm. and they were more, I would say, they were more, they musically, it was like, they were really into like misfits. Mm-hmm. So it was more kind of like a misfits, got, like kind of a gothy misfits meets ska. This we, was a band back in the nineties. I mean, if you're going to be misfitsy, you need to live almost entirely in minor keys. Did they do? <laughs> did they do? Yeah, such yeah. A thing? they did. They did. And then uh, you know, it's funny about the independence. They didn't get that big, but uh, Joey Ramone like really liked that band, mm. and uh, he toured with them. He brought them on tour, and I think he pl- sang with them for a while. It was really weird. <laughs> I don't know. look it up. <laughs> Very little. Uh, it's funny that they didn't get bigger with that kind of like uh, that kind that of kind of like uh, you know like not nod you know like from Joey Ramone. Well, you know, not everybody likes ska, and to some people, <laughs> so, to some people, it's a bit of a punchline. And uh, not everybody, oh, really? not everybody likes goth. And to some people, that's a bit of uh, you know. To some people, goth begins and ends with the the South Park kids that constantly have the the, the thing of hair mm-hmm. falling in their face and flicking it out of the way. So you put the two together, you're you're alienating a lot of people right off right from the <laughs> jump. Maybe that was maybe that was their issue. Um, uh, I wanted to touch on. I think I mentioned Goldfinger earlier. I didn't really know anything about them. Again, it's that East Coast West Coast thing selling out the subject of selling out is Mm -hmm. was will always be but really at that point when you'd never had such a vibrant independent music scene as you did say starting in the 80s and then that starts to bear fruit in the 90s um the kids want the stuff that has that credibility the major labels are actively farming there for talent trying to save their jobs trying to keep their industry from completely losing its marbles yeah and so the subject of what is or what is not selling out, who is or who is not a sellout becomes just as big a thing in ska as it does in punk because they are, as we've been saying, intertwined, real big fish, just awesome. You say it was actually a coincidence. They did not get signed and then write a song about selling out. They wrote a song about selling out that that helped them mm-hmm. get signed, which is terrific. Yeah, they wrote that song before any, any contracts were being thrown their way. And the song was actually uh, had to do with the band, the Dance Hall Crashers, mm-hmm. who had uh, signed to um, a subsidiary of um, a major. I can't remember the major, but the the subsidiary was called Five One Zero, and uh, Five One Zero I think was run by uh, the two guys that you, that managed or used to manage Green Day. So they were, you know, they were. Yeah, Dance Hall Crashers are from that scene. Actually, yeah. Dance Hall Crashers were originally started by Tim and Matt from operation ivy slash rancid they started that band and then they were out of that band real fast i don't know i guess they were like eh, not for us 
but the band continued on and, and they became pretty successful. So real big fish were watching some of the scoss some of the ska scene in Orange County where they lived kind of just have that attitude about oh how dare dancehall crashers sign to a major label you know and so they were kind of making fun of that and they were kind of saying like you know i think it's great that they uh that they're getting to uh have more people going to hear them yeah you know, like what's the big deal you know N- nothing more vividly illustrates the difference between being a grown up and being a kid i think than thinking through what the ethics <laughs> or perceived ethics of selling out because make no mistakes you selling out is a thing that can and does occur and it's mm-hmm. not the coolest thing that you can do. I think many people who opted not to the shameful secret of, of the whole selling out concept is find some people who didn't sell out when they were 19 years old and ask them 20 years later, <laughs> if they, if they wish they had, you might be surprised at some of the answers or not surprised at some of the answers that you get. But um, yeah, making, making dollars for doing the thing that you love exactly the way that you want to do it yeah. is not, getting paid is not selling out. They're not one in the same thing. And, uh, and I can, I can still remember things that I said about bands back then that were just ludicrous. Yeah. The selling out thing was particularly at its height in the mid nineties. Um, especially like, you know, I'm, I'm from the Bay area. Uh, Gilman was one of my, you know, spots where I like to go to shows. Gilman was just had no, it was a zero tolerance policy for, if you were on a major label or if you were even like they included epitaph <laughs> right which was technically an, an indie but they were pretty big indie because you know offspring and rancid and and you know the few bands took off so they had money yeah major distribution if you were on epitaph your 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 CD You're, was going to was going to be in tower so you were a major label band by that math but what's really funny is that like if you look at epitaph's catalog you know consistent like they didn't they didn't, you know, they, they, they had a brand and they stuck to their brand, you know, mm-hmm. they, they may have like done stuff like, you know, Tim started Hellcat to do ska stuff, you know, they, they branched out, but in a way that made a lot of sense, it wasn't like they weren't suddenly investing in pop stars. So no, they may have had money, but they were, they had ethics that they stuck to from day one that they yeah. carried out. To now this some day, of the, so. some of the emo bands that came along 10 years after that, you might have some questions about but that was that was in the, that was in that was in the future at that point yeah so so gilman you know if you were on a major label or epitaph you you were just banned from the club in fact if you were on an indie if you were in an indie band and you had a booking agent you could play there but you could not book the you could not book a show through your booking agent you had to call and book it yourself yeah i know skank and pickle had a booking agent and like they would the booking agent would book all these tours but they'd be like Hey, um, can you guys call Gilman? I, then they won't take my call. So you have to book the Gilman show yourself. Oh, the, the, the hoops that people used to jump through. You know, you hear the stories about the band that got offered the major label deal and we're like, no one will take us seriously. Hold that thought. We're going to take some of our second tier songs and put it out on Caroline Records and then you can sign us eight months from now and we'll really put out the record because then we'll be perceived as an yeah. indie band. That, I mean, it's, yeah. Being young, Green fun. Day. Green Day were kind of like the target enemy number one because I think mostly because they sort of, they kind of opened the door to this. I mean, Nirvana may have been the thing that was like, okay, uh, an indie band, you know, an obscure indie band can sell millions of records, right? Mm-hmm. But it was Green Day was the band that was like a punk band can sell millions of records. Yeah. So they were uh, not only did they influence the the thinking of the labels, but they, you know, they brought the conversation to punk rock in a, in a much more visceral way. And like they grew up, Gilman was their club. Yeah. They, they did their, you know, they came up in that club. It, it was their education. It was their place that they got known. They were banned from that club. Um, they were eventually like kind of recently let back in the club in like the last but, like seven years. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But they've like, you know, they've kind of taken it with a grain of salt. Like they're like, we get it. We get it. You know, we're not trying to change, but they've like done so much. They like donate money to that club. Mm-hmm. They like support the club. They, um, they, there was a documentary called, um, turn it around, which, um, they, they kind of started and they kind of funded, but it's, it's, it wasn't, it, it, the documentary was supposed to be a Green Day documentary, but they were kind of thinking like, oh, you know, as the more we kind of dive, dive into the story, we're just a piece of the East Bay story. So they made a story. They 
kind of funded this documentary about the East Bay scene. And, and Gilman, of course, is a large part of that. So they, of course, it's kind of interesting that they were like, you know, we, we get it. We're not like, we're not the stars. This scene is, and this club is. So, you know, we kind of let the documentary be this. And they, they give so much time to this club and they give so much like clips of people saying, this is amazing. This place was so you know, but this club banned them for <laughs> decades. And I just, that's, I think that's kind of like a, I think that kind of shows that Green Day, um, you know, when all said and done, those guys, you know, they, they quote unquote sold out, they got famous, they got lots of money. I think that they kept their heads on their shoulders. I mean, I don't, I say that not having ever met them, but yeah. it seems that way that they, they're not so full of themselves that they, that they would just be like burn burn these bridges of their past. They still, they still like look back and say like you know we honor these things even though these things maybe don't honor us. Right. Well, th- those things not honoring us is almost the reason why because it's sure. Yeah. Well, let me. Like, this is kind of off topic, but the subject. I do a bunch of music pods, and the subject of Billy Joe's perceived. I would say in some cases, uh, indubitable music plagiarism has come up from time to time. And they're one of these, I always compare them to like Led Zeppelin where it's like Led Zeppelin wrote enough classics all by themselves that you can throw out all the stuff that they stole from old blues guys. And you still have one of the greatest bands of all time. And I definitely think green day has written lots of songs that if they took them from somewhere, I don't know. I don't know who they took it from. I think Billy Joe made them up, but there's uh, there's a number of songs that they've been li- linked to uh, Dillinger Four, you know, Double Whiskey, mm-hmm. No Coke is, I mean, I think everybody kind of acknowledges that's what happened there. I don't know if you know anything about this. Very recently, somebody brought to my attention that No Effects makes a live album and they're playing the longest line on it, and then towards the end of it, they just start singing Basket Case, and we're not really clear on whether or not that was them going, "Hey, look at us, we're all friends who sing similar songs," or whether that was No Effects saying, "Hmm." We sounded like that a couple of years ago. A whole, not necessarily. It's not the same song. It is not the same song. But uh, to what extent, if they were ostracized by that world, might it have been because of the perception that you guys have cherry picked a lot of what made indie bands great and packaged it up in a way that you could then sell? Yeah, I mean, plagiarism in music is a weird one because I think plagiarism implies intent, and I think it's so it's so possible to either just because there's limited notes to just write something unaware of what other ones, someone mm-hmm. else is doing, especially in it's punk also, rock. Let's it, face it. Yeah. It's also possible that you're just listening to all this stuff and you're not consciously thinking about it. it's like seeps into your brain and you write a riff. You're like, wow, that's this riff is really good. You maybe inadvertently plagiarize it, but you didn't do it on purpose. You just, mm-hmm. cause you, does people, do people pay conscious attention to every single song they hear? Right. I mean, I know comedians, comedians talk about this too. Like sometimes they do the same joke. Uh, Maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe they actually heard it, but they didn't even think about it and realize that they were making the same comment as someone else. So it's tricky. Um, Well, I guess what I'm asking is this, have you, you, you obviously have your ear to the ground in this world far more than I ever have or ever will. Um, is that a part of their reputation within the punk rock scene or, or is it not? I don't think it's, I don't think that, I don't think so. I think, um, I think green day, um, for the most part are respected Mm -hmm. amongst punks. I like them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the under the, you know, the, the scene generally appreciates them. They generally view Dookie as a classic. Um, I think that your your punks to like the punks that are growing up today, younger punks don't have this dilemma with selling out and nearly in the same way that people grew up in the nineties did. It's not, I mean, some of that's because labels don't have the power that they once did and that they're not, they're not, they're not actively plucking bands out of subcultures the way they used to. Um, the kind of thing that like gets punks riled up more nowadays is like, um, things like, oh, this band is like promoting problematic ideas or this, you know, this band has a, a member who did, you know, maybe did some, some sort of sexual thing or maybe supports another band that did like, these are the kind of things that I feel like are maybe comparable to the, the sellout discussions of the nineties the, about the, these type of things, the identity politics of music. 
those those are the things that you see discussed yeah. um, uh, passionately in like with amongst younger punks now. No, that sounds right. I, that sounds right. I never I never hear them going like, "Oh my god, I can't believe this band's on a major label." Right. Like, or or holy shit, that sounds like a song by the Kings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they stole from the Kings. How dare they? How dare they? We love the Kings as children. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's cool. I, I appreciate you indulging me on that. I've just been been wondering about that. Um, well, we, we've been but talking. Green, Day, Green mm-hmm. Day's Dookie uh, just celebrated like an anime. Wait, was it been like 25? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just had my 25th high school reunion. So, yep. I have saw, I've seen copious, uh, long, um, loving posts about that record from people in the scene. So I okay. haven't seen anyone be like, oh, fuck this sellout record. <laughs> cool yeah 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 Yeah, i wasn't sure about the whole you know did he did he maybe borrow some stuff here and and there but i I never questioned when they showed up that it's once again it's if you're doing what you want to do and people respond to it more power to you it's it's ludicrous it's ludicrous to sabotage your own songs and to throw in an atonal chord to stop it's ludicrous to make your song worse to try to keep from getting too famous and yet there were bands that actually literally did that. definitely yeah I mean, Green Day, I think, you know, their albums have been hit and miss over the years, mm-hmm. but I think it they've definitely been, it's been clear to anyone paying attention that they're making art that is important to them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they have decades of having been signed and having continued this course. And, and sometimes it like totally doesn't land at all. And sometimes it does, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've already kept you uh, longer than uh, I said I was going to. I appreciate your your time and your insight. And I'm enjoying this book. It's not, um, despite how it may sound as we're talking about it, it's not a straight history of the no. of Scott. It's a series of intertwined essays. And it's like a, it's a nice, breezy, fun, casual way of dealing with this uh, genre. And it feels like a, 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 a the right way to deal with this. Oh, yeah, genre. I felt... To me, it felt like it was impossible to try to like create a, a singular narrative about yeah, not just the genre because the genre goes back to like late fifties Jamaica, but even even if we were talking about uh, you know a single period of time or place, like how do you approach that? Because there's a national narrative, like let's say the nineties, Scott. There's a there's a there's a national narrative of this music going from the underground to the major and then kind of dying, but there's like uh, scenes. Uh, happening regional scenes happening as well and there's all there's all kinds of things happening all at the same time so it felt like a more natural way to approach it than than like a straight narrative it felt that way reading it because there's you know there's there's this one sort of pinpoint on the map that's one story and then there's this other but then when stories start to run into one another i felt like i was getting I was like, oh yeah, there's that band again. Okay, I I I I got it. I'm getting the flow of this. How this whole thing, the continuum of this, how this how this fits mm-hmm. together. So, um, I'm enjoying it, and I'm going to continue reading it. And uh, the best compliment that I can give any book about any band or about any genre is you don't have to like ska to enjoy reading this book. So if people want to oh, check thank it you. out. Um, Aaron Carnes, your book, as you well know, is called In Defense of Scott. Thank you so much for your time and for your book. Thank you for having me on. Hello, friend. Thanks again for listening to the show. Aaron's a great guy. I had fun talking to him. I hope you enjoyed that as well. One quick reminder before you go, you can both listen to and watch my Year in Review 1984 podcast video and audio open to everybody you don't have to be a patron to listen to and or watch it go over and check it out whenever you have a second patreon.com slash mike tully that is patreon.com slash mike tully hope to see you there